Welcome to the first Tech Kitchen podcast. In this episode, me and Dave discuss what impact we see with a four-day working week. What is hacktivism? And how do we stay current with what's going on in the tech community? If you'd like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Hey, Glenn. Great to be here. Yes, it's wonderful to uh, talk to each other face to face. So the first question I've got at the moment, everyone's talking about a four day work week. I know over in the UK, there's 60 companies, probably much more that have signed up to this concept of a four day work week. It sounds nice, but it'd be great to hear what you think of uh, such a topic. It certainly sounds nice. I think like a lot of people, when I hear of a four day work week, the first thing I think of is, oh, three day weekend. A lot of people interpret it as a four-day work week where we're working the same amount of hours. So it's maybe 40 hours over four days, 10 hours a day. But historically, the four-day work week has been an attempt to reduce hours overall and have people work less. And testing out this idea that working too much actually lowers productivity. It's been going on for a long time. If we go back 100 years, 200 years, the standard work week was six days and something like 12 hours a day. And since the advent of unions and everything, we've slowly been whittling it away, looking for this balance. At what point does our work week become so long that we actually are getting less productivity? And I think that's what it's all about. So when I hear four-day work week, I think it's going to evolve in some way. But what it really is about is not how many days, but how many hours we work and where the balance is. And we shall see. COVID is the perfect time to experiment with all this. Yeah, I mean, companies come out with, uh, it's 100, 80, 100. So it's like you get 100% of your pay, you do 80% of the work. So therefore, it's like four days instead of five days. And you're still expected to have 100% output of what you would do in a normal five-day week. So the companies that say four-day weeks, and they still expect to do 40 hours in a week, it's not a benefit at all. It's just purely just making you work more on a four-day capacity instead of and you know having a three-day weekend instead of what well, I think the true idea of the concept is to be more productive in the time that you are actually working. I mean, it's, it's a super interesting concept because I don't feel I have enough time in my day anyway. Essentially, you know, working five days a week, I always feel there's too much to do. So therefore, whenever I go away on holiday for a couple of days, I feel like the next three days are rammed, packed, because you're still trying to catch up on the work that you've missed. But, you know, some of the reports that we've had so far of this type of uh, practice has shown that really positive results that people have been able to maybe spend a little bit less time at the water cooler chatting and, you know, be able to focus on your work a little bit more. Or maybe they just didn't have enough work to start with and they were able to just stretch it out into four or five days on that from that perspective. The idea is great. I do have a lot of concerns about practice. I don't believe the true numbers that we're seeing from companies just yet. I think you need to have lots of companies trialing this and then see the data from that to see if there really is that productivity uplift in those senses. One other thing that really concerns me around this, though, is the stress. Are we going to be giving people more chance of burnout by feeling more pressure to still be able to be that productive and not be able to take a 15 minute break in the middle of the day because they know they have to deliver, you know, five days worth of work in four. What's your thoughts on that? I also don't believe a lot of the numbers. There's been lots of studies and lots of very promising data, but it's read between the lines. It's not so clear. And there is a lot of pressure 
Are we getting the same amount of work done in less time? How does it affect people? There was an interesting experiment in Sweden where they went for a so-called four-day work week, reduction of hours, and everybody was getting out earlier. And it was very interesting. They found that it was um, disproportionately difficult for women who were now expected to get as much work done uh, as they had uh, ordinarily, but still leave earlier. And then the expectation was that they would go pick up their kids and then be parenting the rest of the day. And there was a lot of interesting data on how uh, a lot of women were less satisfied <laughs> with the situation than others. They've done experiments in Japan where they found that there was no reduction in productivity, but they were in sectors and companies that tend to be pretty inefficient. So what really happened there? We don't really know. In Iceland, they did a four-day workweek experiment. If you look closely, they didn't really do a four-day workweek. They were just reducing hours, trying to shave off time on people's workweek and establish that work-life balance. And they had a very promising result, but they really were only removing two, three, four, five hours from the work week. So the data is all over the place and we don't really know, but the inefficiency is real. I mean, there's a lot of inefficiency in the workplace. We all feel it. Nobody gets eight hours of work done in an eight hour day. So one thing I love about this whole conversation is the idea of efficiency and how we work is beginning to evolve a little bit. Meetings are getting shorter from what I hear. When you move into the four-day work week or reduced work week, all these new rules like, hey, no hour-long meetings unless it's really necessary. And I agree with that. Most meetings are too long and not very useful. And these are the kind of things where we can really get some gains. But will it work? I don't know. And do people really want it? Everybody wants a three-day weekend. But look at startups, especially in the States and the UK, people working 80 hours a week. So the last thing they're going to want is a four-day work week. They'd rather have a nine-day work week. It's very varied. I don't know how it's going to unfold, but it just seems like another step in this very, very long progression of finding the balance of how much do we want to work. And I don't know how it's going to land. What do you think will happen in a year? Will we still be talking? I imagine so. I can imagine this carrying on for a while. I mean, we were constantly in the process of optimizing our workflows. And when we have optimized the what we do from a work perspective, we then have more responsibilities put on us, which then just keeps us fully busy with what you need to do. And you're absolutely right from a startup perspective. Normally in startups, you have to do lots of hours because you're trying to catch up against the competition and, you know, produce new products and solutions and it's not an easy environment but this is the excitement that exists with startups i mean me personally i'd love to do a three-day weekend i mean i spend my weekends a little bit with the family but also i try and read books i try and you know play around with some other technologies so therefore I'm improving myself during that time anyway if we said tomorrow we're going to start a four-day work week i could still imagine that friday i'm going to be doing something technical, maybe not directly work-related, but something that I'll be filling my time with, hoping for it to be a productive aspect of my time. So maybe that's just a personal problem I've got where my personal time I spend trying to be productive and improve myself and I still wouldn't relax anyway. So maybe it wouldn't this isn't targeted at people like me. But you know, if it is achievable, then yeah, who wouldn't want to do this? And obviously with the issue of 
industries becoming obsolete, being taken over by AI or uh, autonomy and uh, machines. There is, I've definitely heard this in a few places, there's a concern of uh, mass unemployment. So therefore, how is the future of work going to look if a lot of existing job roles that exist right now suddenly disappear because they can be done cheaper and more effectively in a different way utilizing computers and cloud services instead so therefore maybe it's a fairer way to start reducing the number of days in the work week so therefore more people are employed rather than just having the few that are working their butts off for six seven days a week and everyone else not being able to contribute to society or you know earn in the same type of way wow yeah that's really interesting that's very forward looking that's further than a year though i must yeah. say so <laughs> it's real i guess the takeaway is the four-day work week, I think, is just a phrase that people like. I don't see us going to a four-day work week uh, universally, but the idea of becoming more efficient and being able to reduce hours and improve work-life balance is very real, and people like it. I like things like reducing meeting times, trying to set that standard, and just changing the way people work so we let waste less time. In France, they've done this experiment now where it's, uh, I believe it's illegal for an employer to be reaching out to an employee at night or on the weekends, unless there's a special circumstance or it's in their contract, trying to do things like that and just change the manner in which we work so that it's better balanced and more efficient. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff like that emerging, plus the flexibility of COVID. Maybe it's okay to work 40 hours, but somebody wants to work it in a different way, or they want to work a weekend, something like that. But I don't know about the four-day work week. There's a lot of logistical problems. You've got police and uh, you know call centers. It could get very, very confusing. Yeah, customer support would struggle. And uh, yeah, essentially, I know they've incorporated that uh, limitation of contacting outside of working hours in multiple countries. I know Portugal's one. I used to work out there for a bit. And yeah, they've made it illegal. I mean, essentially, my thing to wrap up is the organizations that actually state four-day work week but still expect 40 hours a week. I wouldn't see that as a perk. In my 20s, I probably would have done because I would have loved that. In my current life, I don't think working a 10-hour day and then along with the commute is the best thing for my lifestyle. So if it is reduced hours, then yeah, that does sound like a perk. But if it's I'm still expecting 40 hours a week, I don't consider that a perk, but maybe some organizations still do. We shall see. Absolutely. So uh, we'll probably come back to this in a year time and see if this has disappeared or not. Yes. The next topic, which I think will be really interesting to talk about, is uh, hacktivism. So... During the current political times, hacktivism has been on the rise again, I would say. Governments coming out and saying, oh, yeah, we're looking for people, cybersecurity experts or anyone that can help to join the cyber warfare or something like that, which is it's an interesting time to live in to watch this. But I think another important piece of this is if you're managing developers and teams of people, if they're actually actively involved in this. So essentially, this takes me back to probably about 10 years ago, and probably a bit more than that, when uh, WikiLeaks was essentially stopped allowing to have payments come through and Anonymous stepped up and started attacking MasterCard and you know the big payment providers as a retaliation for the fact that WikiLeaks wasn't able to get accept donations anymore. You know, I was aware of several people around my age group that were actively doing DDoS attacks and actually supporting this type of process. What's your view on what's going on with hacktivism and obviously the concerns if you do actually manage anyone that's actively involved in anything like this? That's something I hadn't even really thought of. So that brings a whole new kind of legal and ethical element. You know, what are your employees doing on the side? The whole thing I find 
to be just kind of frightening. And I might just be dating myself. You know, it feels like a sort of a conservative old guy thinking this is just terrifying with all this going on and we need law and order. And my opinion is not so simplistic as that, but I find it to be very frightening. I think that it reminds me of when MP3 started going around in the early days. And you remember Napster? The early days, we called it file sharing and we called it all these things. And there was all this discussion about how we were actually you know, sticking it to the music companies because they were screwing the artists. But in the end, it was a lot of music stealing, essentially. It was IP theft, um, for better or worse. And it was much more acceptable. I remember thinking you wouldn't go into a record store, or you know, back when we had those, and steal a CD. Most people wouldn't do that. But stealing something online felt different. It's not a, a visceral experience. It's not tangible. You don't have to look at it. It's easier. And I think that might be what's happening now. If there was a business that I disliked, I don't think I would go form an organization and blockade the entrance of that company so they couldn't work or the uh, customers couldn't get in. That would seem like a big dramatic move. You know, denial of service tax is essentially the same thing. But it's okay because it's remote. We don't have to feel it. People are wearing masks. It's anonymous. It feels the same to me. It's like there's a cultural shift because it's easier to do something we wouldn't ordinarily do because it's online. And that frightens me a little bit because I look at who these actors are. Like Anonymous is they've done some amazing stuff. I mean, it's hard not to applaud some of the things Anonymous has done. And it's been wonderful. But it is a non-state actor. It's this loose organization. And they're literally wearing masks and issuing threats on the world stage. And it's just extrajudicial like sentencing of companies. So, I mean, I love a good sci-fi movie, but it's not so crazy that this could spin way out of control. And if there was enough money behind it, I think it'd get out of control. So I feel like uh, law and order might be the way to lean on this one, but it feels like a, an old-fashioned opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because I've seen a similar cycle like this before, the issue is the people that get heavily involved in this are normally at a younger age group. They're very keen and they don't really realize the implications that even with good intentions of, be it, you know, attacking a government entity, it is a legal activity. So therefore, you are breaking the law inside your own country, even if you do think that it's the right thing to do morally. The second thing is, if you are attacking, let's say, state level and countries and governments, they're very clever organizations with very smart technology, and they can normally identify people if they want to no matter how good you are. You know, everyone thought that Tor was a great way to avoid being tracked, where actually all the exit nodes were controlled by the US government three-letter agencies. So it's like, well, that hasn't solved your problem, has it? So, and another issue is you never know what the organisation that you're actually dealing with to attack, because, you know, there's community groups set up, you know, Anonymous is a prime example of that. You know, there could be anybody can be part of Anonymous. And yes, potentially you're doing something which you think is helping, where really the people behind the scenes are actually directing it towards the US government instead and using any tools that you build or anything, any skills that you've got against the actual purposes that you're trying to use it for. And even if they're not doing that at this point, these organizations change the people that are running groups or running these types of activities, change their targets and then start 
picking their own that may not align with your values as well. And therefore you're now tarnished with the same brush as them because they've decided to go off on their own uh, sector. Was it LOLSEC? That was a break off from Anonymous as one example where they started doing that. And then you've got like in the UK recently, uh, two kids, one the 16, 170 for the lapsus. I can't remember. Yeah, something like that, where they were attacking the Brazilian government and, you know, the authorities knew who they were. The local hacking groups were able to identify them and then dub them in. Yeah, it's not a safe game to play, even though it does feel so, just being on your computer at home. So, you know... And let's be honest, you know, a lot of script kiddies out there where they copy and paste some stuff or use some tool, they don't know what it does and they think they're helping where really they could be doing absolutely anything as well. I know what you mean when you talk about, uh, you know, you get involved with some organization and then suddenly it changes and they have a new aim or a new goal and you may not agree with it. Anonymous, they have like a credo. I don't remember what it is, but part of it is uh, we do not forgive and we do not forget. And that's a pretty harsh credo. I mean, I've never heard of a government saying, you know, this is our, this is how we do business, to never forgive. Just a strange and kind of hard way to operate on the international stage that we don't forgive. It's not very kind, yeah. you know. It makes a statement though, doesn't it? It does, and it's intoxicating, <laughs> you know. It's sort of like like the WikiLeaks, and I love the word leaktivism, because it is a little different when somebody's leaking it does feel a little bit more like a whistleblower. So it's almost less frightening, although not really, but somehow it feels better. But when WikiLeaks was doing a lot of the work that they did, it did feel different. It was sort of a more of a passive thing. It was definitely taking a position on an issue and taking action, but it wasn't introducing anything new. It wasn't trying to change anything. It was more just uncovering. And that felt good. But with something like Anonymous, and they're literally wearing masks, and we don't know who it is. And then they're making big statements. Like during the Ukraine conflict, Anonymous said that they were going to continue hacking Russia, which they've been doing very effectively, but indiscriminately. The government agencies and businesses and everything, they would continue doing that until Russia turned over the Donbass region to a UN peacekeeping force. And that would had to be the agreement. And that's a very weird form of diplomacy to say we're going to you have to turn over this region to a UN peacekeeping course. That's not really how things go. So who made that decision? Who was making, who was doing this? Do we want to fund this? Amazingly, there are now reports that the Ukrainian government is on Telegram encouraging people to hack against uh, specific targets in Russia. I'm not sure if that's true, but if it is, now we see this kind of acceptance of it, getting baked into the culture, the cyber war is kind of okay. There's a lot of, you know, state uh, run hacking that's just openly done in China, North Korea, and I'm sure in the States, although in the States we pretend it's not happening, but it's it's in the open. So there's a lot of secret stuff happening and I find the whole thing to be terrifying. <laughs> I know there are groups in Ukraine where it is been approved by government ministers of this type of activities. Yes, essentially is entering a new cyber war, which I don't think we've ever really seen at this level before. But then obviously you've got hacking organizations and groups then going the opposite way. So you end up having people that support the Russian side going against people that support the Ukrainian side. And another example that I can think of as well, I know there's been a few cases of uh, US people hacking into Korean or Russian-based military systems 
and then you know causing some trouble there and then like the us uh, three letter agencies don't like it because they were aware of their exploit and they wanted to keep it quiet and now someone's come in through the same exploit and done something they're now going to tighten up their belts and they're not going to have that routine anymore as well so essentially just a way to wrap this up then if you do have employees underneath you that are saying oh yeah i'm taking part in this what would be your advice to them i think that well, it's very difficult to tell a, a younger, right, more kind of game person who's excited and idealistic to keep their mouth shut. And I think you're right. I think it is sort of younger, more idealistic employees that are going to be doing this. But probably that would be my advice, would be to not be involved in it. But saying that makes me feel aged and not like a revolutionary. I mean, there is something to be said for taking matters into your own hands and uh, revolutions occur. And sometimes you've got to give power to the people. So I, I get it. But I wouldn't even want the legal exposure to having employees doing that. I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, essentially, my advice would be be aware of what you're doing and what the potential ramifications are, be it legally or anything like that. Obviously, what you do in your own time is your business. And I wouldn't tell a soul if you were taking part in any of these activities because you never know what's going to come back and bite you. Don't start posting on Twitter, I'm hacking Russia right now or anything like that, because that's not something that could, that's something that could easily turn around against you. Just, you know, as you move through your career and as your life goes on, even if you're not directly targeted, this type of stuff can come around. So, um, okay, wonderful. I mean, it's a very dark area we moved into there very quickly in this uh, episode. Yes. So as a bit of a lighter way to tidy up then, so staying up to date with the most current technologies as people like you and me have to do, how do you do this? What type of resources do you use? What type of approaches to keep yourself current with what's going on in the world? This is a great question. Everyone has a different style of keeping up. I like to read news, but I like to do it quickly. You know, I, I don't listen to a million podcasts or anything like that. I'm more of like a headline Hunt and Pecker. I look at the headlines, and then if there's something that really interests me, I might take a look at two or three sources and learn about it. So for this kind of keeping up, Google News is fantastic. It's just a great aggregator. And I like filtering out certain sources, and I'm very interested in who's talking, who's reading, what I'm listening to. And I have a lot of sources filtered out uh, so that I can have sort of a balanced view. And I go to Google News, I look at all the headlines, and then I decide if I'm going to click in. And I have about 15 or so phrases that are saved searches. So like I could put hacktivism in if I was following that, and a lot of cybersecurity stuff, crypto, things like that. That's my main daily go-to. I've really started to like newsletters. There's one from the New York Times called On Tech, written by uh, Shira Ovid. And it is fantastic. I really recommend that. Axiom launched a new uh, crypto newsletter that's going out this morning. And a bunch of others. But I'm pretty picky about the sources. I'm finding that my uh, balancing my time against reading and learning, it's really important. It's really a rabbit hole. And I'm very careful. And then podcasts are just for the car. I love podcasts in the car. How about yourself, though? What are you, what are you reading? 
So, yeah, newsletters is a great way to try and stay current with what's going on right now. This isn't evergreen information, but it's always useful to know what is happening generally inside the tech community. So, obviously, Medium, they send out blog posts of things he likes. Very recently, it's just been all crypto or NFT or blockchain posts that I've been getting recommended by them. So, I assume that's an algorithm thing they've been picking up on. But, yeah, other newsletters like uh, TLDR, The Hustle, even Hacker News I've got on there, but that's very hard to get through. But something that gives me six, seven topics of what happened over the last 24 hours with the titles and a very short description allows me to quickly scan through it, understand what's going on, and then click through if there's anything valuable there that I think is worth reading further. How many podcasts will you listen to in a week? I listen to quite a lot. Yeah, so with my commute to an hour and a half to get to the office, I'm only going in twice a week, though. So that's that three hours of commutes. And, you know, I sometimes watch a bit of videos in there. And then when I go for runs as well, or when I'm cooking dinner, I'll have the podcast on. So I listen to the Twit Network I do enjoy a lot. It's They call themselves the, the oldest uh, tech podcast around. But yeah, they've got the Twit Network and Security Now, which is very interesting. I listen to a bit of The Verge. What was it? Diary of a CEO is quite interesting. It's very different. It's not really tech related, but it's talking to other CEOs about how they created their businesses. It's a little bit more emotionally driven at the moment about, you know, how do you cope with burnout? So it does touch on um, that side of things a little bit more. Agile Conversations is another great one. I mean, this is the thing. It's finding a mix of some stuff that's evergreen, the way you're improving your base knowledge. So, you know, having some books of, like, if I just look up here, what I've got, I've got uh, Reaching Cloud Velocity. I've got The First 90 Days, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, These are all evergreen skill sets and knowledge that you need to have. So therefore, constantly trying to move that forward, but also trying to keep up to date with current activities that are going on. And yeah, this is... This is where the podcasts come in, where I don't, you know, it's sort of in the periphery and doing other stuff and it's going on and, you know, you remember it and you're able to relate to it in uh, conversations. See, I don't have as much drive time, right? I'm, I'm into the office really just once or twice a week. It's less than an hour drive. So I usually squeeze in a podcast or two. I like Decrypt. It's really good. Uh, there's The conversation is fairly new to me, but they do a weekly podcast and I'm really liking that. Twit is great. But that's really about it. I don't find the time to do podcasts uh, that much. One thing that's been kind of a surprise is uh, I'm learning a lot from clients in the last year or two. I've really started to see that if a client is talking about something that I don't know that much about and I ask them to educate me a little bit, they're happy to do it. There's so many clients that are more than happy to share what is going on. And I've had people explain to me all kinds of interesting things happening in all sectors. And it's sort of educational and the clients love it. You know, everybody likes to talk about their expertise. Books I very rarely read. I just, there's something about the, the book. When I'm reading a book on my Kindle, it's uh, leisure time. It's been probably two years since I've read like a tech or a management book because the podcasts are kind of filling in for that. But I might get back to it. Well, you've got a lot of experience, Dave. You know, there's probably not much new that I can teach you now. So maybe that's why. You think so? I think I need to be keeping up more than anyone, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, to trying to survive in your 50s in this uh, industry, you better keep up or you're going to wash out quickly. So I've got work to do. 
Sure, sure. I mean, absolutely. When you talk about the client piece there, that's very useful. I think we're both very lucky where we do do a lot of consulting to customers and we do regularly come across areas of domains that we don't know that much about. Obviously, the technology we do, but the actual domain itself is a great way to learn. And obviously, the other one is uh, community groups. So Slack communities on part of multiple where conversations happen, people ask questions, and then you get to see people in those communities answer them in a way that is really helpful and makes you trigger something and obviously you can contribute to that as well and that ties in very nicely to what we're trying to do with our techkitchen.io community from that standpoint too so i've, I've tied in a self-promotion there. that's a nice little plug for us well done <laughs> but it's really true popping into the slack conversation from time to time you know i go in there and i scan around a little bit and more often than not i'll find something that either interests me or somebody asks a question and i think Oh, I've got a really useful tidbit to offer and it just feels good and it's human, you know, it's, it's real interaction. So it's wonderful. Although another surprise as far as keeping up is I was a bit of a LinkedIn and Twitter hater just two or three years ago. I just, Twitter had become completely useless to fire hose and LinkedIn really got excruciating for a while. But nowadays they're both back to my surprise. I'm checking Twitter every day now. And LinkedIn, there's some legitimate, interesting stuff happening on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I agree with. Twitter, I can't. I've, just, I've got a few thousand followers and it's just too much. Essentially, let's start unfollowing a lot of people. The problem with Twitter is the more successful you are on Twitter, the harder it is to utilize, I think. But, you know, it's great to see that you're doing that. You know, obviously, I believe they're still trying to improve the product to make it better, but it's still a real pain for me at the moment. I have to do sub accounts where I have a fake name. I follow five, 10 people and that's it, you know, just because I want to try and manage my data stream. Well, I did a, a Twitter cleanup where I used this utility that I downloaded that went through and unfollowed everybody almost down to zero. And I pruned everything. Uh, down to people that I really knew and cared about and then started again. And it was life-changing. I recommend it. That's why. That's why. Okay, wonderful. So great to talk to you. We'll chat again next week. And uh, yeah, it's uh, been a really interesting conversation. Always great catching up. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>